Good morning, church. It's a beautiful day. It's good to be here with you in the building and uh, those of you online as well. And as you heard Mike allude to in his prayer, there is a spectacle tonight that will uh, take place. But I got to be honest with you, the far greater spectacle is before us right now. And I can promise you that uh, with all my heart. And I found something really interesting this week, and I, I went home and I was talking to Sheila about it, and it kind of caught me off guard. I realized it on Thursday. Thursday's uh, kind of the last day of the week uh, for me where I'm actually writing the sermon. I like to have it finished uh, in writing on Thursday so I can take time on uh, Friday and Saturday and really think through it and process it. And uh, when I got home, I said to Sheila, I said, you know, I wrote an entire sermon this week, uh, the week before the Super Bowl, a week before uh, my favorite team, the team that I've grown up loving my whole life, is about to play for the championship, and I honestly did not have one thought about it. And, and I got to be honest, it, it was, I was so consumed by the text this week, so consumed by it. And not only was I consumed by it, but I found myself wrestling with it. There is so much depth and richness and goodness in this word uh, that I'm just so thankful. I'm just so thankful that we can be lifelong students of God's word and the glory and the majesty of God pouring off the pages never gets old to us. In fact, the older we grow, sometimes we grow in even more awe and more wonder. Uh, regarding who our God is. And that's where I found myself this week uh, over and over and over again. And I was thankful. And, you know, I got to be honest, later today, we'll watch a game in my house. Uh, but that, that's not in any way uh, what has consumed my mind, my heart. Uh, and I give thanks to God because for me, uh, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work uh, in my life. Because I can tell you 10 years ago in ministry, I would not have been able to think straight. Uh, on, this, on this kind of morning. But God has a way of changing us, shaping our hearts, reordering our priorities, uh, changing our minds, and forming us more into the image of His Son. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. We have a, a memory verse for this month, the month of February. Uh, let's say it together. By your loyal love, you will lead the people whom you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength, to your holy dwelling place, Exodus 15, 13. We continue our study through the book of Exodus today, and we're entering into uh, a part of Exodus that, to be honest with you, uh, there could be a little bit of tension today for us. It's a difficult few chapters, chapters 11 and 12, and we're going to deal with that today. We're going to take it head on. And we remember at the beginning of our Exodus account, we found ourselves introduced to this ruler with the title of Pharaoh. And in the religious tradition of Egypt, and in the mind of his people, Pharaoh was the representation of deity. He was considered a minor god. And from his position as lowercase g, god and king, Pharaoh had given an edict, first to the Hebrew midwives, and then to all his people. And you remember what that edict was at the beginning of Exodus. What were they to do? They were to take the firstborn children of the Hebrew people and do what? 
throw them into the Nile. It was Pharaoh's attempt to control the blossoming population that he believed would one day threaten Egypt's own peace and prosperity. And the problems with this command, I mean, we could unpack them. They are many, not the least of which was the fact that Pharaoh is not God. And Pharaoh does not have the sovereignty, nor does he have the power over his kingdom to ensure that this command would be carried out. And so, what did we find? Moses, an infant, born to Hebrew women, is saved. He's protected. And God takes that which Pharaoh had intended for evil, and he turns it for the people's good and for his glory. And today we come to a portion of our study in Exodus that sounds eerily similar to some of the words in the beginning of the book, in Exodus 11. God tells Moses that he is going to destroy the firstborn throughout all of Pharaoh's land. And the difference between Pharaoh and God, the differences, they are many, But in this instance, we are going to clearly see that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, will be wholly able, sovereign, and powerful to execute his judgment. Pharaoh, through his hardened and obstinate heart, is not allowing God's people to go free. And this has brought wrath and judgment to the doorstep of his nation. But God's judgment is very different from Pharaoh's at the beginning of Exodus. For in the 10th plague, we will see that in his wrath, God remembers mercy, and he gives opportunity for life and for freedom. And even still, even though we will see that, The reality is that some of us today may still feel a tension with what's happening in this text. We may feel at a crossroads where we, we've known and we've experienced this good and kind and gracious and benevolent God. But here in our text today, we will be confronted by the one same God who brings death upon the firstborn throughout all of Egypt. And I would say that it is in portions of Scripture like ours today that we are required to approach with a posture of humility. We do not presume to demand that God make himself wholly understandable to our finite minds. Rather, we accept God, the God of creation. And we accept that he is knowable yet far beyond comprehension. And we remember that ours is a faith of wonder. Ours is a faith of mystery. And we put on our childlike imaginations and we choose to accept God as he presents himself in his word rather than creating him in an image that makes us feel comfortable.
In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Chronicles of Narnia, there is an unforgettable scene. Many of you have read the story, maybe many of times. And it serves as a helpful reminder on how we approach our God, who is knowable, yet beyond comprehension. Susie and Susan, Susie, Susan and Lucy are two of the heroines of C.S. Lewis's fable. And in one of the scenes, they're talking to Mrs. and Mr. Beaver. Now, this is going to pique your imagination. If you haven't read this, you're going to want to go and read it. They're talking to Mrs. and Mr. Beaver about the mysterious lion whose name is Aslan. And in, in this book, Aslan represents the character of God. And Susan says, speaking of Aslan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. To which Mr. Beaver responds, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And upon hearing this, Lucy, the youngest of the children, the youngest of the Pevensey siblings, she says, then he isn't safe? A question that provokes the following response from Mr. Beaver. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. As it turns out in the novel, Aslan is not able to be tamed by the human mind. And neither is our God. And we so often, and I'm guilty of this, we like to try to tame that which appears to us to be wild and unsafe. To control it with our mind's eye. To build for God a cage where we can neatly and nicely put him. And he can live and exist in a way that elevates our own security above his own self Revelation. God does not reveal himself in nature or in the world to be a God who can be tamed by our imaginations. And we, friends, we are not a people in need of a tame God. But rather, we are a people in need of a mighty fortress of a God. A God who creates, a God who calls all, who sees all, who hears all, who knows all perfectly. A God who holds everything together, the God of all comfort, the God who provides perfect peace, a God who is beyond manipulation or coercion and above the powers of hell and the schemes of humankind. Our God reveals himself not as tame or tameable, but rather as sovereign creator king who rules and reigns in both his imminence high above and transcendence near, whose ways are unfathomable and are not like our ways. And more and more, as I approach these difficult portions of scripture, I want to be able to pray the prayer, the prayer that we're going to pray today before our study. Lord, help me accept by faith the God that you present yourself to be in 
your word. Where my questions overwhelm and burden my heart and mind, let your response in Jesus be enough. Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. It is the wrath of God and his judgment of sin that are often the most difficult pieces of God's mosaic for us to gaze into. We fancy the parts of God's mosaic that point to his love and his righteousness, his mercy and his grace and his goodness. But Pharaoh has not led in a way to bring those things upon his nation. Rather, sin and death are bringing judgment and pain and torment. But in it, we will see that God is merciful. Today, the final plague and the thread that we will tug on throughout revolves around the commingling of God's wrath and his mercy. God will judge sin, but he will also make a way for those who believe. We're going to see as we turn to Exodus 11 what God does, and then we are going to discuss how we should respond. We'll read the text first today, and then we'll pray. You want to take your Bibles or your apps and turn to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11. We want to read it slowly. It's just 10 verses. We're going to read the whole chapter. We want to take it all in, and then we'll ask the Lord to guide our time. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said thus about the Lord. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. Let's pray. Father, your word is magnificent and it's powerful. And you are good. And you allow yourself to be known, but we do not always understand. And we cannot always grasp or fathom your ways. You are the God that is silent and also the God that sings over his people. You are the God that is present yet the God who hides his face. In so many ways and in so many paradoxes, we're confronted with the reality that we cannot fully comprehend you. And when we approach these texts of Scripture, Lord, ones that may be difficult for us, we ask you to humble us. We ask for you to Help us to walk by faith, to not need the answers, but to need the focus, the focus to gaze upon your son, Jesus, and to see all of your attributes and character as revealed in him. What wondrous love is this? The depths of which we will forever be unpacking. Lord, there is a way for us to read and understand this text today that would cause us to grow and be able to love people in a better way than we are today and to love you better than we are today. And your spirit's at work. He's alive and active right now, Lord, and we are trusting that he is applying to each and every one of us what we need. Bringing comfort, bringing conviction, bringing healing, stirring hearts, changing minds, molding. We want to be changed. We want to look more like Jesus. Use your word today to help that happen. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If we aren't careful at the beginning of chapter 11, it might be easy for us to overlook the emphasis of God's instruction here in the first two verses of the chapter. And we've grown accustomed over the last number of chapters to hearing God giving Moses specific instructions or commands to give to Pharaoh. But here, God is giving Moses instructions for the Hebrew people. Look at verse 2. Instruct the people that each man and each woman is to request from his or her neighbor items of silver and gold. And what we see is that in the act of setting his people free, God is making provisions for their time in the wilderness. He's also going before his currently enslaved people to grant them favor with the Egyptians, as we see in verse 3. 
Even Moses would be considered as very great within the land and respected by even the servants of Pharaoh. God is going to strike one final and deadly blow to the heart of Egypt. Death. Death to the firstborn. It is going to topple the future hopes and dreams and aspirations of an empire that was bent on making a name unto itself. And the pain is going to drive so deep that the Pharaoh would completely and utterly want to drive out the Hebrew people from his country. In verse 4, Moses begins to reveal to Pharaoh the totality of this plague. The firstborn throughout all of the land of Egypt, from the wealthiest and most elite to the poorest and enslaved, all human and all cattle, none would be spared. A devastation that would bring such a cry that had never before or would never again be heard in all of Egypt. But as iterated in verse 7, against any of the Israelites, not even a dog will bark against either people or animals so that you may know that the Lord distinguishes between Egypt and Israel. And throughout this narrative, this phrase has been prominent that you may know that you may know. And you can see on the screen all of the different ways it's been used of God. Moses is not happy to deliver this news. It disturbs him deeply. Perhaps because a number of those that were going to perish in this plague, he personally knew. Moses had grown up, spent many years in Egypt. We don't get any sense here at all that Moses is happy that the Hebrew people are soon going to realize their long hoped for deliverance. The freedom of the Hebrew people is going to mean loss and death and grief and mourning and utter despair in the lives of many people. Friends, deliverance comes through the shedding of blood. For both the Hebrews and for those of us today who are children of God through Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Before his crucifixion, Jesus is in the garden and he's facing God with great turmoil and anguish. The Bible describes his state as even sweating like drops of blood. Even praying, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Moses actually remarks to Pharaoh that soon his own servants would be so devastated that they would seek Moses out to bow before him in their anguish and beg him to take the Hebrew people out of their land. Moses then is going to leave the presence of Pharaoh in great anger. It says his anger was hot. 
And we see from beginning to end, Moses and Pharaoh's relationship was rocky. Verse 9, familiar yet paradoxical statement. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Where have we heard that before? Over and over and over again. Nine plagues prior, Pharaoh will not listen. But next, interesting, in the tremendous loss of life that Egypt was about to experience, quote, the wonders of God would be multiplied in the land of Egypt, end quote. And we can see examples of God's wonder multiplied as we look at the images of his mercy that is embedded within this judgment. I've listed seven. I bet we, if we took time, we could find more. But seven, that seems like a good number, right? It's like the biblical number of perfection. So I stopped at seven. One, God promises the complete release of his people. That seems pretty merciful to me in his wrath. A second, the focus group in the announcement is not Pharaoh, but actually the people of God. The emphasis is on what Moses is going to tell the people first. Next, in his judgment of the Egyptians, God is also preparing provisions for the release of his people. Isn't it amazing that as the, as the Israelites fled Egypt, they plundered the people who had held them enslaved. God is going to grant his people, including Moses, favor with the Egyptians. How did that happen? That had to take a supernatural act of God. All of the plagues that had come upon Egypt and Moses in our text is revered among the people. God is giving Pharaoh another opportunity to hear and respond in obedience by faith to free God's people. This is Pharaoh's tenth chance. We don't do that as parents. I'm going to give you to the count of three. Three. Uh. <laughs> I mean, the mercy of God is if we miss it, we're intentionally overlooking it. It's all over these texts. Ten opportunities. Next, God is giving clear instructions. He's not being silly or goofy with Pharaoh. He's not being mysterious or giving Pharaoh a riddle that he had to solve. He's telling him, here's what's going to happen if you don't let my people go. And when Pharaoh doesn't let his people go, God does what he says he was going to do. That's merciful. He's being consistent. And he's giving foreknowledge. This event didn't happen yet. He's giving, that's gracious. He didn't have to give that. And then God, protecting his people from his judgment, 
Those who hear the words of Moses and respond in obedience will be saved. And there's a principle for us here, friends. When we hear the words of God and respond to them by faith in obedience, God is faithful to deliver us. That is a historical principle from the time of Exodus even still today. Respond to the words of God by faith in obedience and God will be faithful to deliver. And, and I believe that one of the clearest examples of God's mercy in the text we're studying today, mingling together with this judgment of the Egyptians, is the institution of the Passover feast. It's really amazing. You turn the page to chapter 12, and there is just this major pivot point in the narrative. It's like the plagues, we're, we're moving on from them, and we are now, from here on out, if you put yourself in the shoes of, with the Hebrew people, we are moving now from bondage towards deliverance. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation. Sorry. Seems like I'm going the wrong way. There we go. <laughs> Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Nine, they do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. That sounds like how I eat lunch after church on Sunday. <laughs> I always feel terrible because I don't eat a lot on Sunday morning. Uh, and I get home and it's just like... <laughs> And the beginning of this chapter, it's cluing us into this time of new beginnings, a new start. And as we begin to wind down, we are winding down the first movement of Exodus. Next week is our last sermon in the first movement. And in this movement, we've focused on the redemption of God. But soon we're going to move into the second movement where we're going to see 
reformation where God is going to reform the Hebrew people into the Israelite nation. New beginnings. And just as in chapter 11, Moses was to instruct the people, he is now to communicate the instructions of the Passover to the congregation of Israel. Year-old lambs or goats without blemish were to be taken by families and sacrificed at twilight. If a family was too small for their own lamb or goat, they were to share with their neighbor. And later on in the rabbinical tradition, uh, the, the, the religious leaders determined that a family of under 10 whew, could share. That's a lot of big families. But this, the idea is, this is a communal event. God is the deliverer, both of individuals and of communities. It's not one or the other, nor is one to be given priority over the other. It's both. God is concerned with the deliverance of individuals and communities. This is a shared and sacred event. It's going to set the Israelite community a part in the world that they inhabit. God is giving the Egyptians a tangible way, a real way for them to see how they are distinguished from the Israelites. And at the same time, he's giving the Israelites a tangible way of setting themselves apart or distinguishing them or themselves from the Egyptians. Church, friends, we too who have come to faith in God through Jesus, should have characteristics that are a part of our lives individually and corporately. These fruits should distinguish us as individuals and as churches, bodies of Christ and congregations from those who have not yet trusted or put their faith in God. How bright is our light? How effective is our saltiness? What is the fruit of our life-giving relationship with Jesus? And how are we distinguishable from those who are not yet believing? I love how Mike prayed that today in his prayer. Let's use what we do later today as an opportunity. And we know there's going to be opportunity. There's going to be at least two commercials on during the Super Bowl that are going to clearly talk about the person of Jesus. Clearly. They use them. Use them for his glory. What's distinguishable? Both as individuals, but then also as churches and faith communities. How does our church, how does our community look different than other organizations that are not redeemed? That are not the body of Christ. The church should not function like the government. <laughs> Thankfully, right? <laughs> I just said that and I thought, man, that's a good thing. <laughs> Nor should we function like a business or any other lifeless organization. Ours is a living organism. That's what we are. We're made up. We're a people. We're made up of living and active parts, all part of one vibrant and living whole community. We are the church. We are the church, the body of Christ, not a building but a living and active people called to have effect on and in this world. For Israel, the instructions are again distinct and clear. 
Take the blood of the goat or the lamb. Put it on the lintels and doorposts. We know what the lintels is. It's that, that like, it, it, I don't, I'm not an engineer, but there's a big, like, object, structural object above doors. It's usually metal. Sometimes in old houses, it's wood. But it goes on other, or either side of the door, you know, long above the door. I'm describing it wrong. But, you know, you put the blood up there on that. Set yourself apart. Set yourself apart. Eat the meat. Not raw, but cook. Roast it whole with its head and its legs. Woohoo. And entrails. Leave nothing until morning. Burn with fire whatever remains. The instructions are clear. In, it, it's great. In the King James, some of you have it. I believe it says, eat it with your loins girded. You remember reading that in other portions of Scripture? Gird up your loins. The idea is that you're eating this thing ready to roll. Like, get your workout clothes on. We're going. We're out of here. Be prepared. Sandals on your feet. Staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. Verses 12 and 13. Look, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. That's important. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I love what God is doing here. There's more testimony to his mercy here. From the beginning of this, God is, is like announcing himself. Moses, he, first he tells Moses, I am. I am. I am the Lord. And then he's like, Moses... Tell the Israelites, tell Pharaoh, tell the Egyptians, tell everyone. I'm going to tell them. You tell them too. I am the Lord. And then he's going to show them the Niles turned to blood. There's no flies in Goshen's. When the flies come on the land of Egypt, Goshen's protected. How does that happen? I am the Lord. The signs and the wonders that continue. And then here in the execution of judgment. He's showing himself over and over again, revealing himself to the people. He's not hiding. When God saw the blood, he would pass over the house where it was. The blood then, just as the blood of Jesus, serves as a propitiation, effective to turn away the wrath of God. And that's a big word, propitiation. But an easy way to understand it is it turns away God's wrath. God pass over. There can be no forgiveness of sin. There can be no real deliverance in this world apart from the shedding of blood. Jump down to verses 23 and 24. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door 
and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And again, from the beginning, we have shared about how there are tones throughout Exodus that are pushing back into the book of Genesis. And that word destroyer here, you may look at that and think that's unique. Yes, it is. It's a clear chime back into the, the Genesis narrative where the same Hebrew word is used multiple times in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 regarding the flood. And then it's used again once in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapters 18 and 19 of Genesis. And in both accounts, destruction is present to judge where there is an overwhelming presence of sin. For the people of Israel, this day would be marked and memorialized in perpetuity a lasting ordinance, the eating of bread without yeast or unleavened bread, that is bread without a rising agent. It's marking the celebration of this memorial. Today, sometimes this is referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the seventh day of the feast, just like the seventh day of creation, there was to be what? Rest. Sabbath. All of this a reminder of how God worked his wonders to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh and their Egyptian oppressors. Now look at what happens in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down. It's going to happen here. The Lord struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all of the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. Hey, Pharaoh. Hey, what a wily guy. What a snake, right? He is the snake. A more crafty serpent. Or a serpent just as crafty as Genesis. And that's how he's presented over and over and over again in this text. It's interesting to note the many ways that Pharaoh tells Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrew people to leave. Get up. Go. Get out. Leave. Take everything, everyone. Urgency in verses 31 and 32. Take your flocks, take your herds, be gone. And then in verse 33, an interesting turn of phrase. The Egyptians are now urging the Hebrews to go and go 
quickly. The verb urging is the same word that's used for the hardening of hearts within the narrative. It's the same exact Hebrew word. With the same zeal that Pharaoh and the people held the Hebrews in captivity and hardened their hearts, they would now work to expel them, get them out of their land. And as verse 36 reminds us in chapters 11, the people left plundering the Egyptians as they went. The Egyptians were literally giving the Hebrews whatever they wanted to see them get out. Quit staying. Just get, get out. This is a devastated people. This is a defeated people, friends. The Egyptians, utterly defeated by God. In every way imaginable, desperate, helpless, hopeless, to just give them all of their silver and gold. Get! Verse 37 And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So, roughly over a million we're looking at. A mixed multitude, hold on to that, evidence of God's mercy in His wrath. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had bought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. It's not just the Hebrew people who left Egypt on that day. A mixed multitude. Perhaps some Egyptians and other enslaved peoples, after seeing the events that transpired in Egypt, they were now prepared to submit and to live by the ways of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, Aaron, and the Hebrew people. And 430 years, that's a long time for a people to be held in bondage. And the Lord is careful to protect and watch over them as they're leaving the land. He's moving them into new and unfamiliar territories. And the night of their exodus was to be remembered and celebrated for generations and generations. Look at verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all his people and Israel through their generations. But a question remains. All of this seems so wonderfully liberating for the Hebrew people. What, though, did it mean for the mixed multitudes, the foreigners who also left? Would they, too, be able to participate in the promises of God. Would God make a way for them? Now there are ways today as a church, as followers of Christ, that we can publicly demonstrate our commitment to God. For the believer today, one way is through the waters of baptism. Another, we're going to practice in just a few moments, communion, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, what we refer to as communion, the body and the bread, taking part of that together. 
Still, other ways that could be commitments to prayer and study of God's word, sacrificial love, serving one another within our communities and neighborhoods. Thankfully for the church today, there are many ways we can visibly demonstrate our identity in Christ. The newly forming Israelite people needed a way to identify themselves as Israelites. The men, the foreigners, they could participate, but they had to be circumcised. Woo! Thankfully, that's not the case today. Verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Uh-oh. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it. After you have circumcised him. 45. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. Oh, no. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. There is a way. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and the stranger who sojourns among you. God makes a way. He makes a way for those who had left Israel with the people, the mixed multitude. He makes a way for those to be able to participate, to rightly worship him. To rightly know and relate to him. Our team is going to come. It's amazing in this testimony that God is in his wrath remembering mercy. And friends, his mercy and his grace are available to all who would believe and would call upon the name of the Lord. First to the Jew, it tells us in Romans, but also to the Gentile. Verse 46, God gives us further instruction regarding how this lamb or this goat should be consumed. It was to be consumed inside of one house. And in the preparation of the food, look, very important, not one bone of the sacrificed animal was to be broken. Not one bone. Later on, in the Gospel of John, we discover that in the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus, even at the hands of his tormentors and torturers, not one bone was broken. Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb. When God moves into the nation of Egypt and destroys the life of the firstborn, he provides a way of salvation through the blood. And again, as we peek forward into the Gospels, God would send his own son, Jesus, one who was called the firstborn of all creation. And Jesus, as the son of God, the only begotten, would lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice 
for our sins, taking our punishment on the cross, shedding his blood to cover our guilt and iniquities. 